Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us in the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio from Carolina's Medical Center. I'm Katie Lupez. I'm Kyle Rodersheimer. And I'm Sean Fox. And this week's Core Concepts is going to cover pediatric airway. Today's episode is sponsored by the Paradox of Time. Paradox of Time, because when you need more time in the day, there's less of it, and when you need your shift to hurry up and end, it won't. Paradox of Time. All right, guys, so this is great. We're here in a cool, calm, collected setting, and we get to cover pediatric airway, and we're not really stressed out in the middle of a resuscitation trying to remember all the things that are specific about pediatric airways. But wait, I don't get it. Aren't kids just little adults? Why do we need to cover pediatric airway specifically? It's just the same as adults, right? Oh, Kyle, uh, you make me laugh. Um, Actually, to be honest, uh, the mantra that kids aren't little adults is something that is often said, and when you go to national conferences, you'll hear it all the time in pretty much every pediatric presentation. You've seen someone have a slide that has that noted on it. I don't like it because I think it helps to engender fear. It allows people to abdicate responsibility for staying abreast of all of their um, pediatric knowledge that we need them to have. It comes from a good point that there are specific anatomic and physiologic differences that must be accounted for when you're dealing with children. That makes them unique. It makes them a special population. It doesn't make them an alien population. It does not make them something that we should fear. None of us who take care of adults would say, hey, geriatric patients, you know, they're really weird. I don't take care of geriatric patients. You don't have the ability to say that. You're not afforded that. So, We shouldn't be able to abdicate taking responsibility for staying abreast of all the information we need to do for our special population of kids. So I like to think of kids as not being not little adults, but as being rather a unique and special population that we must be mindful have different anatomy and different physiology that has to be accounted for. That makes a lot of sense. I guess what you're saying is that kids, they have different anatomy, different physiology, but at the end of the day, they're a patient population that we need to be comfortable treating with and not be scared of. Okay, fine. Of course I was just joking, Dr. Fox. I guess I'm just not that funny. Actually, super sick kids really terrify me. What things should I be doing up front or thinking about up front so that I'm not the one being resuscitated? Personally, I think that super sick children should make your endorphin level a little bit higher. They certainly make me a little bit more anxious. My heart rate gets higher. I probably got a little sweat on my brow. I think that's a normal response to the really sick child coming in, and hopefully that allows you to actually perform better and doesn't paralyze you. And that's where our training and education helps us, is that we're able to act even though we know that this is a really high-risk scenario. I don't want you to ever feel like, hey, you know, this super sick kid's coming in, this is, you know, just another mellow day. That's not how it should be. So I'd rather you be a little bit anxious. That's great. Let's harness those endorphins that are running through your bloodstream right now so that we can actually think clearly and act smartly. When we have the super sick child present, we certainly know that we're going to need to 
think about airway issues because a leading cause of morbidity and mortality are airway emergencies in children. Unlike our adults that have a lot of cardiovascular disease, fortunately a lot of our children don't have that. Again, there are the populations that we need to think about that uh, as well for. But for the most part, when we're dealing with really sick children, we need to look at the airway first. So naturally, after you've controlled and harnessed your own endogenous endorphin level, we need to prepare ourselves. We are very good at being prepared, and this is just another case of being mindful of what steps you're going to need and what tools you're going to need to have in place when that child arrives. Ideally, we would like to have a child's size or ballpark size. So if, when you're talking to the EMS provider or pre-hospital provider before they arrive, if you can get a ballpark age and maybe a ballpark weight would be fantastic. Certainly, there are measuring devices that we can utilize in the room to help confirm that as well. But getting things set up beforehand, just like in your adults, is going to be super important. And basic steps are going to be paramount in helping to avoid disastrous and complicated airway management later. So knowing that your positioning of a child is going to be really important, maybe even more important than it is in an adult, because if I have a child come in and they're put on a backboard based on their age, maybe they're at a point where their occiput actually is causing their head to hyperflex forward on that hard surface. And now they're actually malaligning their oral pharyngeal and their tracheal axes just by the position they're in. And that's where we talk about using shoulder rolls to help alleviate that. In the end, regardless of age, what we want to do is make sure their external auditory meatus is in line with their sternal notch in the horizontal plane when we look at them. And that allows us to be able to get a, at least better alignment of their oropharyngeal and their tracheal axes. The you know, step of doing that may require us to do a shoulder roll, may actually require us in some bigger teenagers. We have a, you know, a lot of children now that are having more issues with obesity. So maybe we actually are going to have to put a roll under their head to actually elevate their head to put them more like in a sniffing position. In the end, it's better not to try to figure out what age requires what. Just look at the child and say, I need his external auditory meatus to be in line with his sternal notch. And then that will be your kind of benchmark for where we're aiming. That's great pearls of wisdom there, Dr. Fox. One of the things that I've always wondered is when a patient like this comes to the room, I'm always curious, cuff or uncuffed ET tube, is there any recommendations or how do you make a choice? So historically, when I was, you know, just starting out in training, we were told that if you had a child who was under the age of eight, some would say six, depending on what text you read, that you were always supposed to use an uncuffed tube because a cuffed endotracheal tube would lead to tracheal stenosis and not only difficulty in extubating, but later having long-term consequences of tracheal injury and needing tracheal dilatations and a lot of morbidity after that. What we now know is that that's not necessarily a myth, but that notion was kind of born from different technology. The, the endotracheal tubes that we had before, the cuffs were high-pressure, low-volume cuffs, and now we use kind of high-volume, low-pressure cuffs. And oh, by the way, we know that we need to monitor the pressures of these cuffs so we don't just inflate the cuff and walk away. We have a device that will tell us what the pressure in that cuff is so that we can adequately help adjust it so that it isn't causing overpressure and actually causing the tissue that's adjacent to the cuff to become ischemic and later have scarring. So we can avoid that issue. So then the if I can avoid that issue, is there a benefit to using the cuff tube? Yeah, if I have to intubate someone because they've got 
severe pneumonia or they've got horrific asthma, hopefully you don't have to intubate somebody for those issues. But if you do, it's going to be easier for my intensive care team to manage their ventilator if they have better control of the gas exchange that's going on in there and you don't have all this leak from next to the endotracheal tube. In the end, the correct answer of is it a cuff tube or an uncuffed tube, which is the right answer? It's the one that's in my hand. So ideally, again, in that preparation stage, I would have thought about this, and I'm glad you're asking, because I should be aware of the pros and cons and say, okay, this kid's coming in and EMS providers are telling me that he's working hard to breathe, likely having a you know severe, maybe asphyxial asthma attack. We need to think about using a cuff tube in that case specifically. But if all I have right now is an appropriate size uncuffed tube, let's use that because we need to secure that and move forward. We can always exchange it later. Awesome. That's some great information on cuff versus uncuff. One thing that I always have trouble with as well preparing is maybe the size of the tube. If we don't have a Braslow tape color or sometimes even in preparation, we don't have the appropriate size bag valve mask as well. Um, I'm not that smart. I can't keep a whole lot of math and equations in my head, and particularly when my endorphins are pumping through real fast. So I think for the endotracheal tube, a very easy guide is the child's pinky. The internal diameter of the endotracheal tube should be about the same size as the child's pinky. So that's a quick little gauge. But again, ideally in that preparation phase, we'll have grabbed what our reference sources are. And whatever you're going to choose, I think being unified and making sure everyone on the team knows, hey, I'm saying this one-year-old is 10 kilograms. Everybody, we're using 10 kilograms, and that's going to help us with using appropriate dosing for our medications, appropriate fluid resuscitation, and hopefully appropriate selection of not only endotracheal tube, but also using uh, the appropriate blade. And then when you get into the real visualization of what we're dealing with, sometimes you need to make adjustments, and that's why we always say, you know, Make your estimate and then grab a tube size lower and a tube size higher because not everyone is built based on what arithmetic and equations would have defined them as being. We all know that that's the case. Okay, awesome. So we're all set in the room. We have the tube selected. The team has appropriate medications drawn up based on weight. What other things about the anatomy and physiology should I be thinking about in the last 30 seconds before medic rolls in the room? This is another great thing to just make your brain go through in that preparation phase, like you said, Kyle, preparing yourself, harnessing your own endorphins to think clearly now and say, what is it that I need to anticipate is going to be different from you know the two-year-old versus the 20-year-old? Again, basic things are very important to remember. So we already talked about aligning the child's airway. Their airways are easily obstructed. Why? Because they're just smaller. So a little bit of snot and a little bit of blood goes a much longer way. And we know that because of the way resistance works in a tube, that reducing that diameter is going to greatly increase the resistance. And we just now have a smaller diameter because they're a child. We put a little bit of snot, a little bit of blood in there, it gets reduced even further and the resistance goes up really quickly. Many times, simple things, not just like positioning, but hey, let's suck out some of the blood and snot. We can maybe get uh, some improvement in their aeration just from that and decrease their worker breathing just for that. We see that all the time. And what very common condition do we see all the time in the PZD where they come in, they're wheezing, they've got a lot of snot? Bronchiolitis. Good old-fashioned bronchiolitis. 
obviously it's not going to be just that easy, but simple things do matter and can play an important role. And now when we think about, okay, I need to be intubating this child. Very simple things can also undermine your success. In the past, we've talked about backward, upward, rightward pressure or burp or cricoid pressure. And we've shown that that is not helpful in adults. Not only is it not helpful in kids, it is counterproductive in children because their airways are so compressible that you will literally just obstruct their airway further, may even prevent you from being able to pass your endotracheal tube. So you have to be very mindful of that. Swat everybody's hands away from their neck. That being said, their airway is very anterior. And we've all had kind of super anterior airways in adults where we felt like backward, upward, rightward pressure was helpful. And in kids, I would highly advocate for using a directed approach to manipulating the larynx. So external laryngeal manipulation is spoken of often in the adult literature. Here, it can be very helpful. So I have my left hand on my laryngoscope blade. My right hand is on my buddy's hand who's on the child's neck. They're not pushing backward just uncontrollably. They're not being unguided. I'm actually using my right hand to help guide the larynx because their airway is so anterior. Many times I can, with a little external laryngo manipulation, guide their airway down with having to use very little displacement of the jaw and head with my left hand in the laryngoscope. I get where I can see the cords. Now my friend who's next to me's hand, I just say, hold that place. I now can free my right hand up, grab the endotracheal tube and put it through the cords and everyone gives me high fives. So simply knowing that this child's airway is going to be much more anterior and I'm either going to have to lift their head to the ceiling or I can maybe bring their airway down to me, but it's not mindless backward, rightward, upward pressure. It's not mindless cricoid pressure. It's very strategic use of manipulating the larynx externally. So that's a really interesting concept, Dr. Fox. I've actually never heard of that, but I can imagine how much more efficient it would be to actually take one of my partner's hands and move the airway into the exact position I need instead of just mindless pressure. Great idea. I would actually advocate for using it in all of your airways. It certainly can be helpful in adults as well. All right, so I think this is kind of a good transition point where we can discuss maybe the most narrow point in a pediatric patient's airway and how that differs from an adult. So that's in the pediatric airway below the vocal cords and is the cricoid ring and is also why many times people would say it's okay to use an uncuffed endotracheal tube because you're going into a more narrow position. In an adult, it is the vocal cords. So the anatomy there is important to kind of realize just because I got past the vocal cords in a kid doesn't mean that we're quite done yet. And I have seen endotracheal tubes fight you because it's a little bit more narrow than you thought it was below that point. Do you have any kind of maneuvers that you use at that point that help you pass that cricoid ring? Not necessarily. I think just being mindful that just being a you know big gorilla and pushing it through is not the best idea. And saying maybe I need a half size smaller if I'm meeting some resistance there. I'd rather be able to do that. Remember, every time you take a endotracheal tube and go in and out of the airway, you're going to be bumping up against stuff. It's going to be more likely to bleed. So being very cautious and careful with how you're manipulating things. And this is, you know, a tricky thing to do when, when your heart rate's going as fast as the super sick kid at 200. But uh, we do want to be as kind of delicate uh, as you're able to be. 
It does bring to mind some other considerations, though, when we're dealing with the anatomy of the child, and that is not only is their airway compressible and smaller, but their whole thorax is smaller and more compressible, right? Their ribs are very flexible and compliant. That is super beneficial when you don't want to break a rib, but it's not very beneficial when you're talking about mechanics of breathing. They actually have to work very hard to breathe normally. They have to move their rib cage even further than we do so that they can generate the same change in volume. That means at baseline, they work harder to breathe and now they're really sick. And that means that even more of their cardiac output is going to their worker breathing. Normally it's 30%, now it's even more. Oh, by the way, they've got some other physiologic challenges that will make that be very important for us to be mindful of. So when you're looking at the super sick kid who's having a hard time breathing, you might feel, hey, you know, he's alert and he's looking at me and kind of following instructions and maybe I've got time to, you know, we'll just put him on BiPAP. Just be mindful that a lot of work is being done and that's expending a lot of energy and based on their disease process and their disease course, maybe that they're not going to hang on much longer. Okay. Kids can, as we all know, compensate very, very well until they're unable to. I definitely have experienced that personally where you're going to go intubate a kid and he becomes hypoxic extremely quickly. That is something that in that preparation phase, you must always be very mindful of. And I just anticipate that this kid is going to become hypoxic and I need to do everything I can to prevent that. Now, why is it that they're going to become hypoxic more readily than someone else? Pediatric patients are at greater risk of becoming hypoxic, similar to pregnant patients are much more prone to become hypoxic. Obese patients are much more prone to become hypoxic than your standard 70 kilo healthy adult. Why? Well, in the pregnant patient, it's because they have a little fetus in there that has fetal hemoglobin that has a greater affinity for the mom's oxygen and literally is stealing mom's oxygen from her. So mom is going to become more hypoxic more readily. The obese patient is going to become more hypoxic uh, more readily because they have a smaller functional residual capacity. So they have less volume to fill up with 100% FiO2 to be a reservoir from. Kids are kind of a combination of both. They don't have fetal hemoglobin unless they've got sickle cell disease, but for the most part, they don't have fetal hemoglobin, but they have this really high revved engine that is just consuming oxygen like crazy. At baseline, when they're happy and healthy, they're consuming oxygen at about eight mLs per kilo per minute, where you and I are consuming oxygen around four mLs per kilo per minute. So they're consuming oxygen really quickly, and now they get sick, so it gets even faster. But their airways are small, so their dead space is small. They have a small bronchus in not only length, but in caliber, and that means that they have a smaller functional residual capacity. So they have a smaller reservoir for you and I to fill up with 100% FiO2 up front for them to then draw from when they're apneic. So they will now draw from that smaller pool with a higher revved engine, greater oxygen consumption, and they will just rip through that oxygen store really quickly. So what do we do to help compensate for that now? Pre-oxygenation. We can pre-oxygenate, but our time frame is going to be short, so they're going to desat on us. Okay, so we're going to wash out their nitrogen. We're going to fill up that reservoir as much with 100% FiO2 as we can, but still... We've already mentioned that intubating the child is going to be challenging because of the anatomic differences. Everything just being smaller, taken on average, is going to be harder. Okay, the target I'm looking at, their airway is smaller, so it's just going to be more challenging for me to visually see and pass a tube through. So now, 
is there anything I can do to give myself more time? Because I do want to be delicate when I'm manipulating these structures. But at the same time, I've got this pressure of time where this kid's just chewing through his oxygen and he's going to desaturate on me momentarily. And someone in the room is going to start yelling out really scary numbers like 80, 70, 60, and I'm going to become unconscious myself. So we can do apneic oxygenation, which has become very common on our adult side and I think is the way to go with kids as well. Is there great evidence for it? No, I don't know that I need a whole lot of randomized controlled trials to tell me that I can keep the kid saturating better if I keep giving him oxygen while I'm doing the intubation. So most of us will just put the nasal cannula on the child at the same time that we start their bagged respirations, or if we've got a face mask on them, we'll have a face mask and the nasal cannula, turn that thing up as high as we can. And then when we are ready to intubate, we remove the face mask or the bag valve mask. And now we continue with the apneic oxygenation through the nasal cannula. Hopefully that's filling up our hypopharynx and maybe trickling down into our bronchus and some of that dead space, keeping that reservoir somewhat full so that the child has a supply of oxygen to draw from when they're no longer breathing. Very simple thing to do can really save you on the other end because once that desaturation starts happening, then the kid's going to become bradycardic, then everyone's going to freak out, then he's going to code, and then things are going to go really poorly, right? Or you're going to just decide that I'm going to be okay with trying to intubate him when his saturation is 70, and that's not cool because he literally is going to code on you right after you intubate him. So it's better to be mindful of the fact they're going to be oxygen issues, it's going to be really challenging. And one of the easiest things to do is one, position us appropriately, two, make sure we pre-oxygenate appropriately, and three, use the apneic oxygenation to keep things going and in your favor. Okay, so it seems like anytime we have a pediatric airway, there's going to be general panic in the room. But we've addressed a few things we can do to prepare ourselves. Make sure we have the room set up, select the correct ET tube, um, and then we need to think about things like pre-oxygenation and apneic oxygenation. In adults, there's things like lemon or malampati scores that help us predict how difficult the airway is going to be. In kids, it's already baseline difficult. Are there other things we need to be looking at from a physical exam standpoint to help guide us in that way? So the malampati and lemon and uh, thyromental distance are not predictive in children. There are certainly some basic things that make sense, though. If your child has no chin, they've got micrognathia, it's going to be a much harder intubation. The child that has Down syndrome, they have a very uh, large tongue. They've got macroglossia which is even greater extent than the child's normally larger tongue proportionally to an adult. Plus, they've got a lot of hypotonia. So there are well-known morphologic changes that any of us would be able to look at and say, that's going to be a challenging airway because their anatomy is so distorted. But there's not a simple, let's just do the lemon law and, and figure out if this kid is going to be high risk for difficult airway. Children that are younger of age, less than one, they're going to be more challenging. Again, why? I really just think in my own experience, it's because the target you're going for is so much tinier and their tissues are so much more delicate and the space you're looking in, their mouth, their oral opening is so much tinier. So just trying to see through there is more difficult. You feel like you need to put on like special goggles or something to be able to see past there sometimes, but there's not a, a simple rule. But it also kind of brings me to probably even a more important concept of the fact that we 
in adults, many times we'll say, you know, this is going to be a difficult airway. So that means there's patients that are not difficult airways. It's either they are difficult airways or they're not. And I'd rather approach particularly kids, all kids, as they're going to be difficult airways. Approach it in this manner and then anticipate that it's going to be challenging. Anticipate they're going to become hypoxic. Take interventions and actions to hopefully avoid those scenarios. And then when it's all easy for you, you successfully pass a tube, you'll be like, well, that was easy. Instead of saying, you know, in the middle of this is a really difficult airway and having to backtrack. I'd rather you say all these kids are going to be difficult airways. And when you're successfully able to intubate them, say, well, that was easy. I like that approach. Walk into the room. You know this is going to be a difficult airway. Have your plan A, have your plan B, have your plan C. What happens in the situation where in a pediatric airway, you can't intubate and you can't ventilate? So in adults, what would we do? Cricothyrotomy. Yeah. Can't intubate, can't ventilate. You crack them. Um, You can do the same in kids. Well, for the most part, you can do the same thing in kids. Depends on if you're able to, one, identify the cricothyroid membrane. Remember, in the very young child, the cricothyroid membrane is not vertically oriented. It's actually more horizontally oriented as the cricoid is kind of telescoped up underneath the thyroid a little bit. So it makes that cricothyroid membrane more challenging for you to palpate. So you might not even be able to find it. So that child is going to be probably a no-go for the cricothyroidomy. And then there's the group of patients that even if I find it, it might just be too small for me to do anything with. I found it, but I can't put a meaningfully sized tube through it. What age does that happen at? That has been, you know, written again in, in texts as eight Again, some say six. Seems very similar to the ages of which you would use cuffed endotracheal tubes versus not cuffed endotracheal tubes. So in the end, I think if I can palpate the child's neck, find the cricothyroid membrane, I think that it is of a sufficient size and I'm in a scenario where I can't intubate, can't ventilate, then do a crike. If, on the other hand, I can't locate the cricothyroid membrane or I do and it's not of a meaningful size, then I need to do a transtracheal needle to do essentially jet ventilation. That procedure is probably the most important procedure any emergency physician needs to know how to do. That and maybe an IO. If I need to get access on a kid right now to get fluid into them, I need to know how to do an IO. And the rare, rare, super rare event where I've got a kid that can't be intubated and has a super ball that's lodged in his glottis and I can't ventilate him, I need to know how to do transtracheal needle ventilation. The procedure itself is super easy. You take a big catheter needle and stab it in his neck. The more challenging thing is what do you do afterwards? How do you actually ventilate and oxygenate through that? There are devices, jet ventilators, to help oxygenate, and you can actually ventilate a little bit. And They're going to become hypercarbic, but you'll be able to remove some of the CO2 just from hopefully passive exchange through the small openings in the glottis or maybe even from around where you put your needle. The needle you use, though, is it's not your run-of-the-mill needle. Could you use a regular 18-gauge angiocath? Maybe, but they're usually too small to stay, and more importantly, they're a little flimsy and they'll kink, so you're just you're not really going to get the same outcome that you want. Transtracheal needles that are more useful have a wire that is wrapped within the wall of the catheter and gives it rigidity but also flexibility, and they're longer. They're not you know just half an inch. They're two, three inches long. So they give you the length for some stability, and then they give you the rigidity so that they don't collapse on themselves and kink. That sounds stressful. Yep. I would say that, fortunately, I've never had to do one in a real alive person, but the procedure itself is not the challenge. The challenge is knowing when to do it and 
than how to hook up oxygen to it later. You can, in a pinch, take a bag connector on the on the end of the endotracheal tube of a 3-0 and take that off of the endotracheal tube and wedge that actually into the hub of the catheter. Or you can take a 3ml syringe, take the plunger out of the 3ml syringe, use that lure lock and put that on the catheter end that's now in the kid's neck. And then you can take the bag connector off a 7.5 endotracheal tube and wedge that into the end of the 3ml syringe. That gives you a little bit more distance from the kid's neck so that someone's not manipulating his neck or her neck the entire time and doesn't yank your catheter out. Again, in the heat of the moment, am I gonna remember 7.5, 3ml syringe, or 3.0? Probably not. You can make a, in case of emergency, open this bag kind of thing and go get that set up beforehand and keep that, you know, in your resuscitation rooms or in your own bag so that you don't have to think about it in real time. So my endorphins are high just sitting here talking about it. Um, any tips for when you're at the front of the resuscitation bay and this is actually happening? I think, you know, keeping the room calm under this in this situation is going to be key to success. Do you have any pro tips for us? I think is no different than any other resuscitation, whether it's a trauma resuscitation or a medical resuscitation or a situation like this where we have a significant airway issue. Clear and concise communication, I think, is going to be the most important thing. And explaining your not what I want right now, but next step also and the step after that. And here's where we're going if, you know, this scenario occurs. But having a team that's comfortable dealing with these scenarios takes time, but it is also important for the person in charge to ensure that the plan is being enacted in a clear and concise way. And I think that communication ends up making everything more fluid and successful. All right, great review on the ET tube. Now, what am I going to use to even put that ET tube in? What kind of blade and why? Great question. The anatomy here is also very important. Children have a larger tongue, uh, relatively speaking, occupies more mouth space than adults do. And also, the epiglottis in kids is more floppy. So using a Mac blade as one would do in an adult or older kids may not allow us to control the tongue as well and may also not allow us to elevate the epiglottis as well because getting into the vellecula and lifting may not have the same result of elevating the epiglottis. So many people like to use millers for that reason. You can, however, use your Mac as a miller. If you like the fact that maybe you've got a a nice Mac blade that you're able to control the tongue with, but you can't get to elevate the epiglottis satisfactorily, just hook the end of the Mac on top of the epiglottis and lift it like you were using a miller blade. In the end, there's not a right or wrong here. You're not going to be judged, oh, you used a Mac at an inappropriate age child. That's not going to really happen. You'll be judged if you can't get the airway. So use what tool you're most comfortable with and is why I would advocate being come comfortable with a number of different strategies and a number of different tools because there's not one single way to take care of every patient. So you're going to need to be able to adjust on the fly many times. That makes sense. So these kids, they've got big tongues, big floppy epiglottises or epiglotti, however you choose to say that. Sometimes those epiglotti can be rounded or long and it sounds like we have some different options as far as a blade to use. We can use the MAC that we're usually more comfortable with in the adult, enter that into the vollecula if we're not getting a great view, maybe even take that MAC and lift up the epiglottis, or we can just go straight with a Miller blade and lift up the epiglottis. That's probably the ideal thing to do in the neonates or younger kids. Sounds right. 
All right. So that was a whirlwind of information, but definitely leaves me feeling much more prepared for my next pediatric airway. So let's talk about a summary. Medic call over the radio. Kyle, what are you going to do? I think one of the key things to set up is knowing the patient's you know, weight or age, just so you can get a rough estimate of medicines and ET tubes and other things that you're going to need to prepare to be successful in this situation. All right. Patient rolls in. You're starting to get a feel for what their size is. Where do you go from there? I think this is the moment when you need to make sure you control the room. This is when most people are going to be stressful. The noise volume can be high. So I think making sure everyone's calm in this moment is key. But then I want to focus on pre-oxygenation and getting the patient prepared if we do need to intubate the patient. All right, we're moving towards intubation. I've got my pre-oxygenation ready and I have my apneic oxygenation plan in hand. I think this is when I need to make sure I run through the specific anatomic differences in pediatric patients based on their age as well as the physiology that Dr. Fox touched on. And then key thing would be to anticipate the worst. So make sure you're coming prepared for all scenarios. All right, I'm going in, I'm looking, and I'm not seeing much. I know that airway is interior, and thankfully Kyle's right by my side. I can guide his hand and gently position it to get that airway right into view. External laryngo manipulation. Kyle's helped me visualize my airway. I got the tube, passed through the vocal cords, passed the cricoid ring. Now I can exhale and say, man, that was easy. High five. Well, hold on, guys. One major problem that we can often encounter, and we see this all the time in children, is that the tube goes too far. It's just a little slide down past the cricoid ring, and now all of a sudden we're into the right main stem. And we can see kids look very terrible. They can actually behave very much like they had a pneumothorax, and we need to be mindful that our job is not done when we pass the vocal cords in the cricoid ring. Our job is when we appropriately position the tube. So be very mindful that we've used not just entitled CO2 to determine that we're in the airway and visualization that we're in the airway, but we get our x-ray or maybe you're super savvy and you use your ultrasound and you can see the actual depth and the position, the tip of the endotracheal tube, because you don't want it to be in the right main stem because you can make these kids worse. All right. Can I exhale now? Now you can. (sighs) All right. So one more time, let's summarize this edition of core concepts. Pediatric patients are a special population. Their anatomy and physiology really do matter. You should always anticipate the worst. And most importantly, there are no easy airways in the emergency department. Thanks for joining us at J. Lee Garvey Studios. This is EM Guidewire, signing off. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go, be awesome today. Seems you know. CMC out. Yo, yo.